Hey, so this week on the podcast, I sit down with Roger Bretherton, and together we're looking at trauma and how we navigate through the tricky situations in life as humans and the ability that we have to comprehend and process the situations we find ourselves in, often not by our own accord. It's a very helpful conversation to begin to understand Roger's background, especially both academically and professionally, and how that can actually soak into the post-Christian world that this podcast looks at very often. It's a really fruitful conversation, and I hope to address this space with Roger time and time again as we go through the life of When Belief Dies. I hope you enjoy it. For those watching on YouTube, I'd ask you to hit like and subscribe and then the notification bell. And for everybody else, I hope you enjoy this episode of When Belief Dies. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion, and life. Once a week, every week, we aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world, delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination, and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why someone holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's amazing to have you with us each and every week. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam and once again I'm joined by Roger. Roger mate, how you doing? Really good, thanks Sam. Yeah, good to be with you again. Yeah, likewise. It's um, It's been... A couple of weeks since we last spoke, which we last spoke about magic mushrooms, which was good fun. Um, and uh, since then, we've been kind of arranging a few new guests to come on the show in the in in, in the distant future. It's going to be going to be a couple of months till that starts happening. But uh, I'm I'm looking forward to having some um, some other guests that I wouldn't have advised on myself that you've recommended and people to look at and ask some ask some deep questions with. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, what what are your thoughts? Just to have interest around that that area. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess what's happened to me is I, as we've been talking, I keep thinking of people I know um, who are, I mean, I think most of them would call themselves Christians, but they have some really, really sort of innovative ways of viewing things. So, um, I mean, we'll introduce them as they come along, but um, one of them sort of led a church that helped people to leave well. So I think that that sounds good. Another one of them is a theologian who sort of advocated that actually God is a problem as a word for us as Christians and we should kind of get rid of it because it misleads us. Um, someone else has done some great work on um, theism and panpsychism and how they're compatible in different ways. Um, I think in a couple of weeks we've got Tom Ord on and Tom um, has been a friend of mine for a while and he's sort of one of the leading lights in openness and relational theology. So his whole idea about God is that God is uncontrolling and it's quite a contentious idea really that he has about God. Um, so ba- I mean, all that's really been happening, Sam, is these people have come to my thought, it'd be great to just ask them. I mean, they know more about this than I do. It'd be great to get them on. So hopefully we'll have some good conversations coming up. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm viewing it very much as I'm not going to go in with like, I need to win this conversation, but I almost feel like I need to win every conversation. So I'll try and um, <laughs> I'll try and make sure I sort of, um, yeah, bring, bring myself um, down from that position. Um, anyway, anyway, well, go on. Do, do you know what's great about all these guests, though, Sam, is that I think all of them will be happy to be pushed. 
So I think if you come at them with a sort of, you know, I have some real problems with what you're saying, I think pretty much all of them will enjoy that. So um, I think that's they're good people to have on. Yeah, I agree. A few of them have actually listened to the have actually now listened to the podcast and gone, oh, this seems quite cool. So that that'll be interesting. Well, if they can kind of understand a bit about us and our journey too, um, hopefully we yeah. can get a really good conversation there. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, anyway, anyway, we aren't here to talk about that right. today. We're going to be talking about a subject which um, you know far more than I do, and I think we both experienced it in our own lives in different ways. But basically, trauma, kind of what is trauma? How do we navigate trauma? The sort of human condition and how how susceptible we are as as individuals generally to to kind of trauma um as yeah even as a family with the anyway i can i can go on on that one for a bit but um i just thought it'd be really interesting to kind of pose the question to you roger to start with and then i know you've got a question for me but the sort of way i want to begin this really is kind of asking you um who are you to want to begin to talk about trauma we kind of know a lot about you and your beliefs but we don't really know much about you and your kind of academics as well as your kind of uh, career I guess and it'd be really good to kind of mm. just underlie it with a with a safe understanding of who, of who you are and how qualified you are to talk about the subject and then we can kind of get into the sort of question that I know you wanted to ask me yeah I think I think that's important Sam I, I, and in a sense this almost comes in the form of a confession because what I'm really saying is I've been a complete rank amateur in everything we've talked about <laughs> so far <laughs> so kind of talking about why I'm a Christian how I am that that's sort of been my attempt to try and articulate it even though I'm not really a philosopher. I'm not a theologian. I'm just sort of trying my best to articulate it. But but as some of your listeners know, I'm, I'm actually a clinical psychologist by background. So I sort of qualified in clinical psychology ooh, 22 years ago now. So I've been at it for a couple of decades. Um, now working in a university, but prior to that, for about 12 years, worked in the National Health Service. And the service I worked in was particularly dedicated to trauma. So it's particularly dedicated to um, psychological trauma. So people who'd been through a whole variety of really, really nasty things. So whether it was, um, I, I mean, road traffic accidents is a big one, but it also includes all forms of sexual abuse, whether that's uh, all forms of abuse, sorry, whether that's physical, sexual, emotional. Um, it includes, uh, worked with lots of people who've been in man-made disasters or police, fire, military, who've encountered death in all kinds of different ways. Um, and one of the things all, all that means for me really is that I, I, I've, I mean, I've kind of clocked about 10,000 hours now of one-to-one -one therapy with people. So um, a lot of time spent listening to people who've been in very, very extreme situations and how that's affected them afterwards. Um, and just as a bit of background, I, so I wrote my doctorate actually on trauma. So the, the question that my doctorate was about when I wrote it was um, was a bit of myth busting because I, I was sort of told that you should never try and treat somebody for trauma while they were still going through the legal system to try and get compensation because they would malinger. They were motivated to stay traumatized, if you like. Um, and I, I did this uh, quite, quite nifty little piece of research. It wasn't a huge sample or anything like that. A few hundred people. But basically what we found in my research was that whether people had settled their legal claim or not, they still were doing better generally if they'd had therapy in the meantime. So it's basically sort of busted this myth and said, no, generally speaking, actually, people just want to be de-traumatized. They want to be better and they don't hang around in the traumatic state just because they want a bit of money. Um, and generally speaking, getting the money made no difference to anyone. So there's no difference at all between the people who'd settled and those who hadn't. So, yeah, really, really interesting area. Um, and, um, it, and, and an area that I sort of went into, actually, was, I, I did, did view it and still do view it as sort of part of my 
Christian vocation, really. So um, I, I know when we talk about the problem of evil, it's a deeply, deeply problematic thing for Christians to, to get their heads around. Um, and I think part of my answer to it, even though it isn't a satisfying philosophical answer, was there is evil out there. So maybe I should be involved in helping in resolving it or, or helping people with the fact that life can be painful. Um, I, and then just to say, um, I, just before one hour, I was just saying to you, know, so, so I'm actually in the middle of a very sort of heavy duty sort of period of working with trauma. So I, I'm running trauma clinics uh, in my mornings at the moment. I don't take external referrals anymore, but occasionally I take on contracts where I have to work with a bunch of people. So, um, yeah, at the moment I, I was uh, working with desensitization for trauma this morning and Monday. And basically I've got that sort of lined up three mornings a week all the way uh, through the next month or so. So very much sort of in the zone at the moment of thinking about trauma in that way. It, that's probably enough about me for now, isn't it? I think. It's a really good overview. I think it helps the listener as well know that um, you're not just a random bloke from the street who thinks you know something like you've actually got the clinical experience behind you. You've got the academic experience behind you and you are doing this right now with kind of people who are going to then go on, I, I assume, and actually begin to input this in, in their own practices themselves. So it's um, it's quite a privileged position, I feel like, to be in to actually talk to you about this is, is quite cool. Oh, that's kind. Thank you, Sam. Um, can, can I ask you a question then? Can I no. go back to you? No. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll just finish there then. Okay. Nice talking to you. <laughs> um, the because um, the reason I wanted to talk about it, so the reason I sort of raised it with you is because I, I don't I don't know if it was in one of our conversations or whether it was offline, but I know at some point you and I were just talking about this, and I think I mentioned in passing that a lot of people who sort of deconvert or go through sort of radical deconstruction experiences would describe it as a trauma um i and i remember you sort of acknowledging that some people do do that but you're sort of a bit nervous a bit hesitant to use that language to describe your, your situation i and i wonder if there's a way in to talk about trauma and probably particularly the trauma that people experience in a deconversion situation or maybe through what happens in church uh, to people at times why, why would you be nervous to use the word trauma about your experience? Great question. Okay, um, here we go. So the idea of trauma, I think, does apply to my experience. I just feel like I do this podcast and have these conversations to work through the sort of baggage that I carry with me from leaving the fold almost and the expectations I didn't hear or the the way that things should have gone that they didn't because I didn't believe in God anymore. Again, I don't think there's any, any kind of decision of my own. I think I just found I didn't believe in God and went, okay, well, that's a weird situation to be in. So let's work that through. Um, mm. And I think the idea of trauma, some people go through like the worst kind of trauma. When I mean the worst kind of trauma, you can correct me, but I mean like somebody who leaves Islam, for instance, who is then kind of, you know, people try and murder them in some situations I, I had someone I used to work with who um, fled a, a country in the Middle East to come over to the UK to seek refuge because of uh, the family situation that they were in uh, people were trying to find them and kill them um, because they'd left Islam and 
become a Christian actually interesting in that, in that situation so they were trying to um, get get rid of this individual um, and I think you know, that for me that's traumatic like having to flee your country having to find refuge in another country having to uproot everything is really tricky and I feel like there are there are scales of trauma that and I kind of fall somewhere probably in the middle-ish it's been quite a hard road but definitely not at that extreme and it's definitely not just been like a walk in the park like some friends I've spoken to have been like I believed in God I didn't believe in God and I just got over it and it's just a transition and I just realized over time that that, that had happened and I was like okay well, for, for me it was very much a case of my life is in this thing and then it all fell apart and it was kind of picking up the, the pieces and moving forward that was quite traumatic and then for others there's this kind of extreme yeah trauma based around a sort of deconversion whether they find another religion or they just they just don't believe in god anymore or that sort of god then yeah that that's what it is but so i think my hesitancy is is around the 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 range of experiences that people are going to have when they hear these sorts of conversations and not wanting to belittle anybody's own personal experiences through what I say about my experience or or about trauma in general like there's a fear within me that I'm going to say something that isn't correct based on how I've perceived the situation and then stop somebody being able to actually process it themselves and actually kind of get through to the next stage of their own healing um post religion um if, if they're in that space so yeah that might answer your question slightly hopefully <laughs> yeah so so if I understand what you're saying you're saying really that you're you're sort of acknowledging that there's a range of what people refer to as trauma and and they, there's a very sort of extreme end to that that people go through really really horrific life-threatening things and it's almost like out of hesitancy of not wanting to make yourself out to be over here you're wondering if the word trauma applies to to your experiences given that it was definitely stressful adversarial impacted your mental health probably in all kinds of different ways but you're just wondering, should I really be calling this a trauma um, in that sense? Should, shall I talk a little bit about definitions of trauma then to begin with, just so yeah, please. that might help us um, to get going? Because tr- the, the word trauma, for starters, is a really, really interesting word in and of itself, um, because it doesn't come from psychology originally. Originally, it's a medical idea. So if you speak to a trauma surgeon, you're talking to someone who effectively deals with people where in some way the integrity of their body has been compromised in some way. So we're talking, you know, missing limbs, cut open, um, gunshot wounds, knife wounds, car accidents, those kind of things. So it's, you know, blood everywhere. And it's a very sort of emergency kind of situation. We've got to sort this out before this person dies. Um, And then what, what sort of happened, I mean, roughly about a hundred years ago or so really is that, that, that idea of trauma as a sort of physical, idea shifted over into the psychological domain as well and so so then we get the idea of psychological trauma which is basically those moments where life in some way seems to invade or intrude upon or interrupt or um, cause problems or damage to the integrity of who we are so it becomes a psychological idea that somehow some some essential part of us has been invaded or intruded upon um, and so, so what that means is it does sort of open exactly the spectrum you're talking about where, um, so some people will call about, talk about big T trauma and big T trauma usually are those situations where, um, it, there was definite, it, either a threat to your own bodily integrity or to your life. So there is that kind of sense of that, you know, that's what people call big T trauma, um, 
and it's you know it's that that kind of thing so that's also where when you're a child if you're sexually abused or physically abused in some ways sometimes when you're a child you think you're going to die and so it is a big t trauma because that's your whole world and when those things are happening it's big and it leaves a, a lasting impression um but then that also makes room for for what you might call small t traumas which are um at, at their loosest end we might call them those kind of everyday um, events or adversities we encounter that leave a mark on us uh, on some way. So if we, we, we if we were going to talk about it in a very minor way, we might say, let's say you have a really, really difficult conversation at work and someone says something really rude that really hurts you. Um, and it takes you a while to get over, over that a little bit. And you might see this person a bit, be a bit nervous around them. And you might say in a very, very small way, that sort of small t trauma it's not a huge thing it's not you know it's not life-threatening but nevertheless it lingers around and if you had lots of those things going like if your entire life at work was like that it was adverse adversarial all the time painful all the time you were scared all the time weirdly all those small t's if there's enough of them sooner or later make it up into a big t and i think that's why some people in, in sort of leaving church actually feel you know they do feel like it's almost been a big t trauma because everything they believed everything they're about suddenly turns hostile or, or perhaps was hostile before that and so it feels like a huge you know amalgamation of things that that i think you know i i don't think it's too unreasonable to call it trauma you know to say that actually that was a trauma e even if you're just using trauma in the in the sense of this was an interruption to you know i had a life plan i had a particular narrative of the universe out of where things were going and that script gets interrupted and what happens when our life plan gets interrupted is that we find ourselves um yeah at a loss seeking meaning trying to work out what's going on we suffer um elements of depression because we're sort of mourning what could have been we suffer elements of anxiety because those things that previously brought us stability have gone um i think quite often we we feel guilt for ourselves or for our families because we feel like we're letting everybody down um I, and so even though I, I, I totally recognize you don't want to sort of inflate that into more than it is, but I think at the same time, we have to recognize that that is really tough. And what, whatever level we put it on, we could describe it as, as a trauma in the sense that it is a threat to the integrity of you as a person, to your personality and who you view yourself to be. How, how does that sound to you, Sam? Yeah, I mean, it, yes. I mean, when, when I left Christianity, there was a... Um... I kind of want to use just so the listener knows. Like, I'm not trying to have a, a therapy session here. I'm trying to use my experiences to prompt conversation for for reflective purposes for us both and for the listener. So, yeah. um, listener, please bear that in mind. It's, yeah, it's important to put that boundary in that. That I mean, you and I agreed that basically, when belief dies, is not going to become Sam in therapy at any point. You know, even though you know my tendency would to be therapeutic, that it that's not the function. So, yeah, just to be clear on that too, from my side. Amazing. Yeah. So, kind of. I think leaving leaving something that is so world absorbing, like a faith system, where you know your very meaning and purpose, existence itself, morality, e even the sort of financial structures that you place around yourself, your your loved ones, what it isn't isn't okay to talk about, um, how you heuristically view the world, how you heuristically view marriage, children, like everything gets completely and utterly shredded and left in the floor, and you're like cool got to try and pick these things up and move forward and 
essentially build new frameworks. And that's, I think, why a lot of people land within philosophy when they leave religions, because they're trying to go, well, okay, well, I can't get it unless I'm sort of supernatural god, so I'm going to have to try and look for this in a in another framework that gives me a little bit more um, of a wrapping so that I can actually begin to slowly peel things back and begin to process things rather than having it all kind of given to me in a jar that just gets smashed. I'm actually going to have something that's a bit more like a like a wrapping where I can begin to work things through and build the right thing and change this bit for that bit. And actually, it's a bit more like um like Lego or a jigsaw rather than a glass jar. The glass jar, you smash and it's really hard to put back together. You're probably going to cut yourself. Whereas with a jigsaw, you're actually able to switch things out and do things and change the pattern and stuff. And it's a bit more... Yeah. Um, it, it just conforms to the ability of, I think, us as humans to navigate change i think especially in the 21st century was so and the 20th century and the, the last few centuries really we've been so driven and on such a fast pace um it's it's incredible if you look back at our ancestors and how slowly things progressed like you know if you were born into a farming family it was very unlikely you were ever going to leave i mean you might do but it's very unlikely you ever leave that whereas if you're born into a farming family today it's very unlikely you'll, you'll stay in that you'll probably go and do something else you might want to that's absolutely fine but actually more likely than not you'll do three or four different jobs in your life and your career will just switch and switch and switch and switch and change. And I think we we bring positives with that. So, so there's lots of great things about the, the fast pace of tech and um, the world around us and how things change. But also it raises a lot of questions like, you know, even around things like... Um, I guess you could look at sort of um, the, the current questions around sort of slavery or the patriarchal societal structures that we might still have in place and, and kind of go, have we just progressed so fast past these things that we've actually forgotten to look back and deal with them properly as a society? And we're now seeing the sort of outworkings of us going, well, hold on, we were actually just running down this road, but we're not actually recognised where we've come from to actually be able to begin to think that through. Whereas, you know, you, you fly back to you know, 80,000 years and you're trying to navigate kind of... Um, some sort of um, ancient human form potentially that's kind of trying to live alongside Homo sapien and you realise that actually there was more time and space to work those things through. Um, and I just think that a really, really, really long way of saying it, I think that the problem is around the speed with which things happen now and how hard mm. it is to, yeah, kind of come past a position. So somebody thinks that you believe a certain structure and you no longer believe that structure. There's no give. It just crushes and sorry, crashes and just breaks. Whereas with a slower pace, somebody like a family might come out of a religious framework generation after generation and it's a slow, steady outworking. Mm -hmm. Whereas these days it's like in or out, done or dusted. It's just, just so quick, quick, quick. It feels like... um yeah that could be just a classic case of the 21st century or it could be that actually that's the way that humanity is going due to our tech i don't know it's a, it's a really interesting one I mean, it certainly speaks to perhaps some of the, the nature of trauma, really. So I think you, you're kind of hitting on, I mean, let, let me just give you some of the ideas that, that psychologists sort of fallen on to try and understand how is it that we become traumatized. And then we might talk about what the experience of being traumatized is like. Um, so, so there's one social psychologist called Ronnie Janeth Bullman, and she's quite famous in the world of trauma because she basically came up with this idea that, that trauma is a shattering of our 
assumptive world, she calls it, the assumptions we hold about life. Um, and the thing is, most of the time, we don't know that we have these assumptions until something comes and shatters them. And that's what makes it so painful. Um, so she was particularly working with abused women or women who'd been raped. And so she's working with a very, very sensitive group of people, um, you know, that she was sort of wanted to understand really well. And and she just started to notice that basically so. So and this goes beyond that group of people. So she said, a lot of us have a sort of just world theory. If I'm good, the world will be good to me. Nothing bad will happen. You know, so we sometimes think that that I think some Christians do think that that they have this sort of deal with the universe that as long as they're good, God will protect them and look after them and nothing will ever happen. And we just don't have that deal. You know, it just doesn't exist. And we don't even know we've made that deal until, you know, it gets broken. Um, I think um, a, a lot of us think think we have more control over the world that we do. We think sort of bad things happen to other people, but not to me. And so we sort of carry that one with us. Um, it, um, if, if we do certain things, we'll always be safe um, and so on and so forth. So these kind of ideas, it's almost like we've made, without realising it, some kind of existential pact with, with the world that means it's going gonna, it's gonna to protect us. Um, I mean, the interesting thing, just empirically, like objectively, when you look at the research done in the Western world and in the UK particularly, you'll find that um, at some point in everybody's life, so this is during peacetime, so 50% of the UK population at some point in their life will experience an event that qualifies them to have been traumatised. You know, they'll, they'll experience something that, that is difficult. So the odds are actually in the other direction that bad stuff is actually pretty likely to happen to us we we don't want it to do we'd like to avoid it we don't want to go there um, but that's that's the way it is now it, let, let me just tell a church-based story from me where i discovered that i had an assumption like this so um uh, my my church here in lincoln um runs um a really large festival uh, we just brought it to a close last year under covid we used to get something like you know 10 to thirteen thousand people come to this thing and uh one year there was a fairly famous um, Christian band playing and people started jumping on the bleachers, the stands in the big top and the whole thing collapsed and about 30 people got injured. Um, and I happened to be the person leading the youth venue um, at that point in time. And the youth venue suddenly turned into this field hospital where people were being wheeled in and people who need shelter come in and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, at, at that point, I was already working in trauma. I was already a psychologist. I knew these kind of things happen all the time. And yet even I still find myself thinking, how could that possibly happen here? And that's when I, so I've got this assumption that just because I'm in this Christian event with all these things, that somehow God will protect us. Somehow the laws of physics won't apply to us. You know, that if you set up a stand badly with too many people in the mud and then get them jumping, that somehow God will protect us from the pain of that. Um, you know, the rules of health and safety don't apply to us here <laughs> because we're Christians. Um, I, and then I had to work through that. I had to work through the fact and sort of rethink my life a little bit. So what happens when our assumptions get shattered is that um, if you think classically in psychology, that there's sort of two ways in which we accumulate information in the world. One is assimilation, which is what's out there corresponds with what I know already. And so I'm just sort of adding to that, you know, add more and more and more. Um, so so that that means it doesn't break anything. It just about so that that's how, you know, if you have a particular view of the Bible, you can accumulate infinite amount of information on that without it ever threatening you. Um, 
So that's assimilation. But then what happens in trauma is we get thrown into accommodation. And accommodation is when a new piece of information coming your way means that you have to shift everything else to try and, you know, to try and accommodate, try and move it. So instead of just adding to what you already know, it requires you to change and reposition so what so much of what you already know. And I think certainly when I when I talk to you, Sam, about your experiences, when I talk to sort of other people who've been through similar, I certainly kind of hear that of like it might it, for some people it's an information. So you talk about reading the book Sapiens and that being a really key moment for you in terms of how do I fit this in? For other people, it's actually just an event that suddenly they discover that their pastor wasn't the guy they thought he was or their partner isn't the person they thought they were. And then suddenly they have to, you know, just alter their view of the world in order to accommodate this new information. Um, th there's lots of things in a church context that sometimes make that difficult for us to do. So one of the things um, that occurs in churches, you have to remember that churches are very highly conformist organizations, generally speaking, that we we as human beings just feel the need to fit in. And, and then um, some churches, particularly more conservative or fundamentalist churches, but it's other churches too, um, tend to have this view that they're sort of like this this paradise, this Eden, we are good. So if something bad happens here, we're now going to sort of manipulate reality to try and avoid having to avoid having to acknowledge that. Um, and, and although my, you know, my experience of sort of having to rethink things and alter my Christianity a bit was was really different from yours. Nevertheless, right at the core of that was that sense of I'm not actually sure this place is as good as I thought it was. And I've brought some really difficult things to the attention of people here who I thought would behave better and would respond better to it. And I had to change my view of the community to which I belonged as a result of that. Um, so, so, that, so that's just a, a sort of a way of getting into it. So trauma comes when we shadow our assumptions. It becomes comes because we have new information um, coming in. And, and sometimes that's even harder in churches because sometimes even our perception or our belief in that new information we feel is invalidated it's not even seen at times so, so let, let me just give you one example and then you can come back with anything else that you're coming out with because I, I thought they, there's a really really lovely piece of research done um it's actually before the millennium now so it's a bit old but it's in the early days of um neural networks when you know ia um ai systems were just sort of developing people were starting to get there and the most exciting thing in ai systems in those days was expert systems that could sort things and decide what things are and give us advice and things like that and um there's this really really fascinating story about this this system that was just developed to identify birds that, that's what it did so you'd show a picture of a bird or give it information about a bird and it could sort out what kind of bird this is or whether it was a bird or not. And one of the principal rules this system had was that um, one of its principal rules was all birds can fly. So that was the idea. Um, and um, so they feed the data of a penguin into this system and it basically goes nuts. And you'd think it would just go, a penguin isn't a bird, but it fits all the criteria for birds apart from being able to, to fly. And so this system goes crazy. It's crunching away all the data for ages. And then the output it comes back with is it changes its mind and said, okay, if a penguin is a bird, no birds can fly. And um, it, it was viewed as a kind of catastrophic meltdown of information processing. And I think that's kind of what happens to a lot of us during trauma. It might start with a very small information piece of information, but once that starts going through our system, sometimes it can undo everything, you know, if we're not careful. I think Many people who deconvert, that, that's kind of what they, they experience, really. It starts off the smallest thing, and then before you know it, you know, it's, it's undone lots of stuff that you haven't expected it to get to. 
I wonder kind of with trauma, whether it's like whether, whether it is possible to not go through it. So I think a, a, a lot of things you're speaking about are kind of like um, people have assumptions of the world, but I feel like these assumptions are made because we want to almost find a status quo with how things are. And then we obviously realize that things aren't ever like that. And we're actually always in flux and you know anything could potentially happen at any moment, which is kind of crazy. So it's obviously not possible to live in that state of consistent unknown. So is it actually possible, I guess, for trauma to not take place? Like for the, for, for the human condition, is it possible to align ourselves to a flux state where trauma isn't possible? Yeah. So, um, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. So, so the first first thing to say is, um, strangely, there's actually quite a high um, correlation between IQ and not being traumatized. So, people who have higher IQs actually are protected against trauma to some extent. Um, and it's it's not 100. percent So, the people with high IQs who do get traumatized, but most people think that what it is, it's because they have a high cognitive complexity. So if I, you know, let's just take my example, the stands collapse at an event where for some reason I've carried an assumption that we'll all be safe here and God would always protect us. What if I just had a much more complicated view of the world that said, actually, I do think it's possible that God could protect us. That doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to happen here. There could be lots of other factors. So I, so I have a very, very complex representation of that situation. It wouldn't have disturbed me as much. And now, actually, if I went into a situation, if a situation like that happened again, it wouldn't disturb me now because that that sort of minor experience of trauma has has led to more cognitive complexity for me. And um, when when you talk to people who've um, been through trauma, basically, it sort of consists of a number of different elements that are involved in it. So, so the first thing is, whatever the event is, leads to some kind of intrusive memory. So the, this is the kind of classic flashback kind of thing. So e even if you think about a difficult conversation, it keeps coming back to you over and over and over and over and over again. And it's almost like you have this thought on a bungee rope. You throw it out, it comes back. You throw it out, it comes back. That That's, that, that's sort of, in a very minor way, that's what a flashback is. It, it's just this sort of, some people would say it's like you have... Um, a file that doesn't quite fit in any of the filing cabinets you've designed to keep it. It's like, this is an oddity and it won't fit in. Now, um, that, that that's one thing with a difficult conversation. It's something completely different if you've been through some sort of terrible, death-defying, you know, difficult trauma where you've seen people wiped out. That, that then exacerbates it even more. But if we just keep it on the very simple conceptual level, effectively what 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 that thought is trying to do is it's trying to integrate itself to you so it's like you're rejecting and it's coming back and therefore the treatment for trauma very often is actually just to hold that thought in mind let's hold that situation let's sit with that and let's find some meaning so we can reintegrate it again into the rest of our thoughts and the weird thing about those sort of intrusive memories that we have is they're actually coded differently than our usual memories of the world so um, if you think about, you know, memories of birthdays you've had, generally speaking, autobiographical memory is um, thematically encoded. So you think of one birthday and you'll think of a bunch of others. That, that's the way it works. Whereas our traumatic memories often seem to be iconically coded, which means that a slightly different part of the brain, they're not quite so well integrated and they're stimulus driven, which means we're reminded of them. So if you have memories that make you cringe, for example, that is a minor traumatic memory it's like it's 
driven by a stimulus, something in your environment reminds you of it, it comes up and you just want it to go away because it's so unpleasant because it comes with so much difficult emotion that you just want to get rid of it. And th that's why the treatment for trauma basically is, is this idea of processing whatever those things are coming up. So back to your question, Sam, you're right in the sense that whichever way you go, if you have a cognitive complex view of the world, you're less likely to be traumatized by things on the whole. You know, you might be scared, might be terrifying, but you're less likely to be bothered by them quite so much. But equally, if, if you are traumatized by things, the trauma itself is an invitation to, to have more cognitive complexity. Like the, the solution to trauma for a lot of people is to settle all the pain and fear and terror that comes with it um, so that you can begin to make that memory just part of your everyday life in that way. Okay, so bringing it into Christianity just briefly and then we can pop back out into trauma in general. Um, so Christianity, as far as I can tell, seems to be a framework or structure with, when, uh, with which an individual or a collective can begin to process and see the world to make sense of the environment it's in, the purpose it's there for, and how to make the most out of those situations. And actually, you know, it's, it's doing many things, one of which, for instance, would be kind of um, delayed gratification, kind of, you know, saying that God's kingdom is going to come, we're going to sacrifice for t today for that future kingdom, and actually kind of relaying those things that are kind of accepted by most humans to be fundamentally important to help us to actually do better in the future compared to where we are now. So Christianity, I kind of view it as like a very complex survival structure or framework within which individuals or collectives can you know, map and make sense of, of this world around them. So I kind of wonder, like, does it, from what I can tell, it seems to be that having that placed over your, your kind of cognitive structures to be able to perceive the world around you, I can't help but see that eventually that is going to cause trauma. That's going to cause an individual or a collective to undo it somehow. It could be through this whole penguin analogy. Or it could be through sapiens or whatever it is that's going to cause it to be undone by a group or a collective. At some point, that, that will happen, and you have to rework the framework to make it current current and, and actually kind of map on correctly. So... Mm -hmm. It's, it feels very much like religion, Christian, that's an example of Christianity, but religion in general is a, a problematic framework in, in the fact that it does seem to introduce trauma. What, what are your thoughts to that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good good point. So, so, I, so I guess, firstly, I, I think that there's more open versus more closed versions of Christianity. So I think you're right that the more closed it is, I think the more likely it is to lead to trauma. Or, or, or alternatively, it has to lead to a great deal of denial in order not to end up in trauma. So you have to sort of cut off large swathes of the world. So I think where, where sort of closed forms of religion most go wrong is, is by making everything wrong around them. Don't read this. Don't look at that information. You can't take this in um, because they're constantly trying to contain, you know, people within this particular belief system. Um, and I, if I, I know we've talked about this quite a bit my my view would be that probably ultimately in the world in which we now live that will become increasingly unsustainable to, to sort of hold out all that information yep yeah, there's good information out there there's stuff we should focus on there's stuff we probably should ignore the stuff that will do us damage and we should stay away from it um but but i think this idea of you mustn't look you mustn't think about it stay away, i think in itself probably will lead to a very limited view of the world and and could potentially lead to some kind of traumatic view now the the other way of looking at it so that that's the way in which sort of structures like christianity can do us harm if they're very closed systems but when they're open systems weirdly um 
they're actually really good trauma facilitators. So, so, so remember a few, uh, I, but, sorry, trauma recovery facilitators is what I mean. Do, do you remember a few weeks back you and I were talking and we were talking about um, the church and I was really saying the church is such a mi mixed bag. And in a sense, this is kind of what I'm talking about, that it, it does do a lot of people a great deal of harm, but it also is the context in which some people find enormous healing and freedom and those kind of things as well. And both those things are going on in the same system. And when you actually look at the research on who does really, really well after trauma, um, in other words, who goes on to grow after it, you know, in the after effects, once they've got through all the pain and the suffering of it, and they start to develop more courage um, and um, more, more strength and more wisdom and all those kind of things, some kind of religious belief actually is an important ingredient in that. Um, now, when I say religious belief, that doesn't necessarily mean Christianity. Um, it can be Christianity. I think there are you know various sort of approaches and elements in scripture for example that help us to develop through pain and trauma and see the good in it um, but generally speaking it's those people who have hope and believe there is something good on the far side of this um, whether that's in a secular or a religious way those are the people who seem to do quite well so I think if it's an open-ended religion I think it does quite well for, for trauma it helps us with those moments I think if it's very closed it causes us all kinds of painful problems um, it, and a lot of this comes into the sort of the religious coping literature, which talks about, you know, the worst possible prognosis people have in cancer and heart attacks and various things like that will be if they hold a belief, something like God is punishing me or um, Satan is doing this to me. You know, holding those beliefs very, very strongly um, actually predicts terrible things. So in that sense, you're you're right. Um, I, I would advocate a more open version of Christianity than that, but I know that's a, a conversation you and I are having all the time. Yeah, nice, nice. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything we do. There are three ways you can support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts and over on Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog, podcast and YouTube channel. All the links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. From what you've been saying then, Roger, there, there's, there seems to be this ability to have a good framework or a bad framework to make the best process of life to be able to um, align yourself as close as you can with the realities of the harshness and the, the troubles that this world just seems to naturally bring about um, with, within itself. And th th this is actually one of the reasons why I really like stoicism. So, you know, Marcus Aurelius, um, Socrates, um, these sorts of individuals who wrote things or pondered things that have kind of helped 
humanity, I think, to move forward. And I think actually Christianity has drawn upon and utilised a, a lot of the ancient Greek Stoic practices. And then obviously it carried on in Rome as well, but also Christianity kind of started pulling it through as well when it kind of realised that Jesus wasn't coming back tomorrow. He's going to be back one day. But let's be, let's live the best life we can. And things like kind of the sort of the last time meditation, which is really are based around kind of, you know, recognizing that there, there will be a last time you do something, whether that be your child falling asleep in your arms or even picking your child up or um, there'll be a last time you go skiing or there'll be a last time you have a bath, for instance. Like the, the one day you won't have a bath again, that'll be the last bath you had. So the, 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 everything's going to happen one one time, which is the last time, and never again. And we live our lives very much like, oh, I'm going to ski forever. I've, I've actually never been skiing, so I reckon there was never even a first time for me. But um, people people live their life like like they're going to be doing the things they do, which they enjoy every day, every day, forever. I, so I do loads of yoga and meditation. Like I, I act as if tomorrow I'll wake up at five, whatever it is, and, and do my 30-minute yoga stretch. That might not happen. This morning's yoga stress session might have been the last time I ever do yoga. And... I think this is why things like stoicism are actually really helpful because um, it enables you to begin to process the reality that life is cruel, that it is harsh, that we we are not in control, and that the unknown is 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 a master over us as a subject. Um, and I wonder, kind of, what your thoughts are on these sorts of non-religious practices to enable one to be able to be really honest with the sort of. Um, very clear makeup of the world that we're, we're, that we're within. Like Christianity grants us this view, but actually there are other things like Stoicism, um, which grant us another view. And actually, I think arguably could be more useful to human flourishing because it puts the human in the reality rather than holding them away from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I mean, so I, I feel like in Christianity, there's many different views of death, aren't there, really? I think it's not just one thing. And um, I, I'd be quite opposed to the idea in Christianity that somehow it saves us from, I, I, you know, I think ultimately there's a thing of there is a resurrection. Something happens next. Maybe there's something there. You know, we put our faith in that. But ultimately, I still think we all as human beings still live in the same reality. And um, I mean, for me, it was actually weirdly reading the existentialists. So non-Christians like Sartre and Irving Yalom and Camus and people like that, that really, really brought me to face to face with the notion of death and how important it was. Um, but, but even people who aren't kind of atheists, so you have people like um, Viktor Frankl, for example, um, who's a sort of theistic existentialist, so sort of Jewish, so there's a sort of God in his... Theory, but even he talks a lot about how we have to live our life to a deadline. You know, it's a deadline. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know when it's set. And he has this sort of really beautiful way of talking about it. He says, so, so he says, you can live your life like this. You can either view it as there's a, a big block calendar on the wall and the pages are falling off it one by one and live in terror about what's happening there. Or he said, alternatively, the way you can view it is you could view it as that you take them each by each, you write on it something beautiful about what happened that day, and you stick it in a drawer. So you can either see the calendar gets getting thinner, or your drawer of experiences in life is getting fuller and fuller um, as things go on. Um, now, it, it was reading about death and death being the end and that being important. So it's around about 2000 when I, I was reading a lot of that kind of stuff. And at the same time, my mum was in hospital. She had a tumour removed from her brain. It looked a bit touch and go. I mean, she did survive. She's, she's alive to this day. Um, but I was sort of reading all this stuff about death, literally sat around her bedside wondering if she was going to live. Um, 
And I don't really think it's a coincidence that that was the same period of time in which reading lots of other theology, I sort of gave up on the idea of hell as well. I sort of gave up on the idea of hell being eternal torment. I was quite convinced by various different scholars who kind of suggested different ways of interpreting the passages that referred to hell um, in that way. And part of the reason I gave up on it was because I realized that death itself was so terrible, like so awful. Um, if if we view it as, you know, eternal nothingness. And as you'll know, both the Stoics and the existentialists really kind of, they, they come at this really by saying, actually, that's the thing we have to accept. Um, and pretty much all human fears, anxieties, traumas boil down to the fact that we are unwilling to accept this, that our life is coming to an end and that's it, that we live as if we're immortal all the time. And I would view it, and I think many Christians, if you think about those Christian scholars through history who traditionally wrote their thing with a skull on the table to remind themselves of death, think about the parents of John Don, you know, loath, you know, definitely a Christian, but also writing about, it, you know, when you see the coffin go past, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for you. You know, this idea of other people's death is terrifying because it reminds us of our own mortality and we defend ourselves against it. So, so I guess my view is I, I sort of welcome those of criticism uh, of existentialism, um, but, but I actually think that's pretty strong. When you take the whole sort of Judeo-Christian heritage, I actually think that's pretty strong in that. Um, I, and I do sort of feel like the, the notion of an afterlife or eternal life, I don't know what point that suddenly became almost like an escape. We don't have to think about death anymore. Death doesn't have any reality anymore. I think the reality and the pain of death is still there. Um, even if, as a Christian, I might have hope beyond that. But that's kind of in God's hands. You know, that's sort of, you know, if, if that's out there, I have absolutely no control over it myself. Really interesting. I, I kind of wonder why why we think death is a bad thing. So I, I understand dying to be bad, uh, potentially, but it's death that I find strange. So the sort of kind of classic meditative like stance is, is around the sort of reality that before you were born you were not and when you've died you are you are not and actually there's no memory or pain or suffering in that eternal sleep that you had before you came into this world and there will be none afterwards as well so it's it, for me it's the dying and it's the like i can understand from an evolutionary perspective whilst why humans have been wired to live as if they will last forever because that is going to help you propagate your genes more effectively and actually evolution stops caring once you propagate your genes so of course it's going to be after the sort of classic mm. age of puberty that people are going to start falling apart and that death really begins to actually begin to do its its magic and begin to bring you back into the earth like it's it, it nature is done with you you're going to go back to the dust back to your eternal sleep and that terrifies us but for the the, the bit of our life that evolution does care about living as if we will live forever is going to help us to push forwards and mm. the, the strongest survive essentially so i kind of wonder like what, what why why do you think that death's bad i mean i uh, so why why do i think it's bad um so I, I I don't know if I do think it's bad. So uh, I'm, I'm just kind of saying that this is why we think it's bad. But I view life as sort of we're suspended between two fears, really. I think one is the fear of death and the other is the fear of life. So on the one hand, um, we fear living too fast, too hard, too energetically and burning ourselves up. And that leads us to put the brake on things and hold back and not want to take too many risks because we're scared of burning ourselves up in life. And then the other is the fear of death, which wants us to push as hard as we possibly can without the brakes on, 
because we know that death is coming and we want to make the most of everything that's in front of us. And I feel like we, we sort of live in the balance between those two instincts, I think, all the time. Um, it, 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 I mean, when you look at the research on death, I find it really fascinating. So there, there's lots of really good research done on terror management theory that you might have encountered, which is basically exposing people to reminders of death, whether it's graveyards or you, you put them on an internet search where they search for graveyards or corpses or something like that. Who knows what, what comes up when you search for that stuff? But they, they go looking for it and then, and then they do tests on what, what they've noticed as a result of it. Um, and, and what you find is that um, following exposure to death, people generally become a, a bit more partisan and a bit more sort of racist and a bit more sort of belonging to their thing. If they're religious, they become more religious in response to, to those kind of um, things. Um, there's some really interesting findings around humility, that if you measure people's humility, in other words, how if they have a sort of a, a settled, calm ego, then generally they're less susceptible to that kind of um, death anxiety. Um, there's also some really interesting research on how our death anxiety goes up um, in response to our life fulfillment. So the more fulfilled we feel in life, the less we fear death. We think, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've done most of what I wanted to do, or I'm happy with where I've got to, and we're, we're happy for our life to come to an end. So, so in answer to part of the question, part of the question is I think people fear death because they fear they haven't lived yet. Like that's part of what it is. It's like, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. I haven't been who I'm supposed to be. I thought that was going to happen tomorrow, and now I, it, it's not going to occur at all. Now, the interesting thing with terror management theory, let, let me just sort of add this in, is that those are the kind of responses you get from people immediately. So when you test their reaction times on a computer, things like that. But if you allow people to reflect, which is what we're doing, allow people to just think about it for a while, what do you really make of this? How would you really like to live? What really matters to you? Then weirdly, what you find is death, they sort of get beyond some of those initial prejudices and some of those initial knee-jerk responses that are kind of a survival mechanism. And they start moving into clarifying their values. You know, what, what do I really live for? Who's really matters for me? And that's when you get also the classic thing of people realizing that generally speaking for most of us, it's the positive relationships in our lives that really matter. They're the things that really count where we really feel loved and warm and they're valuable and we've contributed to people. Um, unless, you know, nobody wishes they'd sat in more work meetings or answered more emails. You know, we realize some of those things were a waste of our time, really. Yeah, I'm I'm forever quitting when belief dies and then realizing that actually it is the thing that is um, easy to quit, but the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. And it's this interesting sort of um, most feeling outside of having a family, shall I say, like like the, the, the use of my brain and my time outside of classic making money in, 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 a, in a job like um, it, it grants me a lot of um, peace, oddly challenging myself in these really hard ways. It actually grants me something that I, I don't get anywhere else and it would be impossible to get anywhere else. And I think on my deathbed, this is going to be the thing apart from having a family, to make sure my, make sure my kids hear that apart from you. Um, there is a, there is this sort of um, this ability to talk to people and really push into these deep questions, which I find fascinating. So kind of coming back onto trauma then. So 
Reddit. It, it, it's a, it's a very very popular um, social media platform where you kind of kind of join different sorts of um, groups basically and um, and jump in and get involved with conversations. Now there are loads of really interesting spaces in Reddit where actually people talk about sort of um, desensitization. So it could be around sort of violence or it could be around um, um, you know injury. So there's a really famous one called um, called. Uh, what could go wrong? So I absolutely love this 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 sort of um, Reddit sub, where basically um, you can look at videos of people doing like skateboarding or free running, parkour stuff, or it could be um, you know jumping on a pogo stick or whatever it is, or stealing a bike or something. And it's it's what could go wrong, and something of course is going to go wrong. And and you actually find that you're, you you get addicted to just scrolling through this feed essentially, and you're seeing some pretty horrific stuff, right? You're seeing people break their legs, smash their face in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but it's almost because it's such short, quick videos, you almost don't really think about it that much. Um, and it's just to have a quick laugh. Now, it sounds absolutely brutal when you say it like that, but actually, if you, I guarantee if you, if you went on Reddit, like, um, what, what go wrong, or there's another one called uh, Win Stupid Prizes, um, you're going you're gonna to find yourself laughing out loud. So there's almost this sort of like um, this emotional buzz from looking at these things. And then also there's, there is a desensitization to, to, to these horrific things that are actually happening. Like somebody obviously is, is very much hurting themselves as, as they try and take a picture next to a goat and the goat rams its head into their head. Like they, they have won a stupid prize. Congratulations. Um, but, but it's painful and there's blood and stuff and, and it's, it's not good. So there seems to be this, this weird link that humans have between that, which could potentially bring about trauma and, trauma itself so we all want to do things bungee jumping jumping out of an airplane uh running a marathon whatever it is things that could potentially harm us and produce trauma but actually from doing it and surviving or escaping we have a, a an instant adrenaline rush and i wonder can you kind of talk us through that i know it's quite a niche area but i feel like actually the sort of desensitization situation is probably quite prevalent within the sort of um i, I imagine the sort of academic papers and things so i kind of like what what are your thoughts mm. around that and and trauma really i, I mean i they, there's a few things in there so so firstly let me say something about humor to begin with so one of the things that makes things funny is incongruity so something that that interrupts things so just as i was talking about trauma comes from an interruption new information comes in that reframes the situation well really humor is is the same thing so um my my son um, asked Siri to tell him some jokes the other day, and it came up with a classic that said, um, "Time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana," and um, it just like changes your whole idea of what's going. Like changes that kind of little grammatical conjunction that you've got going on there, and that's funny. But but the thing that comes that makes it funny rather than traumatic is that it there's a bit of a surprise, there's a bit of a shock in it, but we generally appraise it as trivial. So at whatever point the subreddit cuts, my guess is you don't see the enduring pain and the two hours in A&E and the, the impact on their livelihood. You know, you don't see any of that afterwards. You just see the event itself. And so you can treat it as trivial because it's got no real impact on you. I guess what's, dif what's different about that is, I guess, with the, the rise of media, and people have been complaining about this since the 80s, haven't they, really, since sort of action films and horror films started this sort of fear that generally we can suddenly see in our homes in quite a sort of normal sort of situation things that are pretty horrific very very easily but we become desensitized to them because we see them over and over again now what i find really interesting about that though is that um i know people for example who love horror films 
but are the most squeamish and sensitive people when it comes to real life trauma. You know, I also know people who love um, action films, but but as if it's not, I mean, I quite like action films, but I don't not really, really even sure I've ever held a real gun. I know that will shock some of the American listeners, but it's like it's kind of like there's a difference between fantasy and reality, isn't there? There's a difference between sort of um, what we see and what really, really happens. So I, I think we are desensitized to media quite often, but whether that means we're actually desensitized when those things happen in real life, I don't think we are. And, and it could even be worse than that. It could be that we are really ill-equipped now to deal with genuine pain in life because it's we just see it on a TV screen somewhere else. And it leaves us just not knowing what to do with it. Because, I mean, the news just makes us feel helpless, really. It just makes us go, oh, dear, isn't that terrible? And now here's some more bad news. And now here's some more bad news. Um, I, and the newscaster just sort of go, goes between those bits of bad news with pauses and changes in tone to make it work. Um, so so I, so in terms of desensitization, I think there is a desensitization to media, whether that actually occurs to us to real trauma in real life. I don't think it does. I don't think it, it generalizes, actually. In fact, some people would say that um, those kind of subreddits you're talking about or horror films that we watch aren't sadism as such. So it's not so much that we enjoy seeing that person being hurt. It's actually that we empathize with the hurt person. You know, so you're grabbing the bit of your body that they got hit. And the fun of it is, you haven't actually been hurt. So that's where the laughter comes and the triviality of it, because you haven't been injured. I, I saw a, a really minor car accident just the other day, and I could see it coming a mile off. Someone reversed around a corner into a car they hadn't seen and just phew, head on, you know, quite slow, no one injured, but knocked the whole front off this little Peugeot. Um, and I literally, I felt it as I watched it. Um, but I didn't laugh because I saw the people get out of the car and shout at each other and one woman crying. And it's a different experience than if if I'd just seen a subreddit where I saw that and then it cut, I'd have laughed my head off. But I, I saw the consequences and saw it in real life. So it's a different experience. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. I think um you know, especially with things like um when we got very kind of um I guess isolated during the like the sort of dark times of the lockdown, like you were seeing sort of um, different marches or protests in different parts of the parts of the world, and um, you were seeing some really crazy things, like people getting dragged out of their cars and beaten up, and you know whatever. And, and this is just on Twitter. Like, Twitter is like the home of, of of breaking news. I often tell a few of my friends like Twitter is the number one news app, and they're like, no, it's not. But it re it really is. Like if you want to get down to it, there's like if something happens in the world it's posted on twitter before it's posted on the bbc website um, people have got their phones out and they're hitting record and they're just it's on twitter straight away um so yeah for for, for my listener twitter it's, it's worth getting an account um and then you know follow when belief dies obviously um anyway um I, th I find it it's fascinating because i think humanity is becoming like this like we're we're, we're able to see situations which are awful but we're not actually in it and we're able to not only see actors playing a role, but actually see real life people being in situations and actually we're not in it. And I kind of wonder like there's there's sometimes there's films in there where there's sort of like um could be like some sort of elimination like Hunger Games type thing where, you know, these people have to go out and they're going to essentially one person gets to live and out of the twelve or however many it is and the rest of them are gonna die. And it's almost this like we can say, well, that will obviously never happen, but actually we're already kind of beginning to, to drop into this sort of, um, it's okay for this sort of level of trauma or atrocities to take place. Um, 
as long as we're, we're, we're not part of it. Anyway, I just find that interesting. I think we should part of that there before we get off on well, a weird... I, I, I mean, Go on. We, we can't mention that without talking about Squid Game, though, as well, can't we, in terms of what a massive hit that was. And that's exactly that sort of survival of the fittest. Um, and I have to say that I loved it, but I loved it conceptually. So I loved the ideas in it. I just thought it was a really sort of fascinating parable or metaphor, and I loved the style of it. And I personally thought it was one of the best things I'd seen for ages. So, you know, inadvisedly, I thought my wife, Marie Claire, would really like to watch it as well. And she just, I mean, she watched the whole thing, but she spent her whole time going, this is horrific. I cannot believe we are watching this over and over again. And it was like a wake-up call to me to, you know, actually, these these aren't custard pies that are being thrown at people. These are people sort of dying. Um, but I, I just thought saw it as a really, really fascinating metaphor probably for South Korean capitalism and its brutality and competitiveness was the way I viewed it. It had a lot of um, underlying tones, <laughs> that is for sure. Um, I only watched an episode or so, and um, then I got so um, sucked into a subreddit that I didn't have time to watch the rest of it, so I was just too busy scrolling on my phone. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, I, I say that, but you know, in, in reality, like I was watching a film with Kirstie the other night, and I got bored of it and she was watching it and I was just at my phone and um I was literally on Reddit for about an hour just and the time just flew by as so I was just scrolling through like you know kid on skateboard going 30 miles an hour like what could go wrong like these sorts of things I just find them absolutely fascinating um like why would you do this thinking to myself like how do I protect my children from themselves oh it's so scary um anyway let's let's move back to the actual conversation which is around trauma um and actual trauma not just me watching things on Reddit um so I think I guess we're kind of looking at the sort of like classic time to begin closing the next 10, 20 minutes. So I think for, for the listener and for myself, Roger, it'd be really interesting to kind of hear, you know, your, your top five tips for kind of overcoming trauma. Like obviously it's not that easy, but kind of what are the things that people can do to begin to process the trauma that they've gone through, especially when they're looking at leaving something like a religion or it could be um, another thing that's happened to them. That's quite severe. Like what, how, Obviously, obviously, kind of one-to-one counselling with a professional is obviously extremely important, but people can't necessarily afford that. I can't get access to, access to that straight away. So, how do how do people, individuals in these situations, begin to process effectively to help them get out of this this bind that they find themselves in? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So let, let's just go with a few kind of things that that people can try um, on this kind of thing. Um, so, so I think, firstly, the first thing I think that most people need to hear is, is that the reactions that they have to these things are normal to begin with. So I think quite often one of the most difficult things when we hit the anxiety, the intrusive thoughts, the sense of panic is to think that I'm, you know, I'm going mad or my I've lost control of my brain or something terrible, terrible is happening to me. And I think the first thing I would say is, is just normalization is really important to begin with. Just say, listen, if you're leaving a system or you've been through something difficult and you experience hyperventilation and intrusive thoughts and you're dreaming about it and you find yourself jumpy and startled and scared all the time um, and you feel numb inside at times and you feel like you're avoiding things that previously were quite easy to encounter, um, that's really tough. And let's not add to that a sense of judging yourself. Um, so, for, so I think firstly, as you say, that, that's normal. It's not okay. It doesn't feel good, but it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation that you're in, if you like. And um, second thing to say is 
that those kind of reactions that we've talked about, that cycle of trying to make sense of something that's terrifying and it coming back and you wanting it to go away and it coming back, um, that, that, that for most people, actually, that doesn't last forever. So here's one of the really interesting findings. In, in some research, when they've traced people who've been through genuinely traumatic events, they find that um, after about six weeks of that, that sort of going around in circles, you know, feeling like going a bit mad, for most people it fades. So um, it's only about 20% of people go on to sort of get a diagnosis of something like post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that. Um, and, and so the other thing is just to say, you know, in the immediate aftermath of these things happening, or if that sort of change in your perspective on the world has just occurred to you, it, it, it does take a while to settle and, and just sort of bed in, be with it. And I think if you find after a few weeks, this isn't settling, it's not diminishing, it's not getting any easier, then I think that might be the point at which to think about, you know, how, how do I get help? If you're here in the UK, thankfully, we can get all that through the, the National Health Service. So if you pop to your GP or you go online and look up local mental health services, they'll probably have something that could treat you for, for that, that kind of um, response. Um, third, third thing I would say is that in the midst of all that, therefore, you really, really have to make sure that you're kind to yourself that you don't add judgment to it all, that you kind of go, this is perfectly understandable. Um, so, so for example, I've, I've been working with people this week who've been traumatized and they're actually people I know. So I'm gonna see them outside of the sessions I've been doing with them when we've been reprocessing it. Um, and I know that one of the problems for them will be next time they see me, they're gonna have a bit of a vulnerability hangover going, oh, now I told Roger all this stuff. Um, and so one of the things I've really made sure I've said to them, I, I just want you to understand that if the, the situation was reversed here, I'd be telling you all my traumas and all the things that happened to me. And I'd be just as upset as you've been. And I'd find it just as hard as you've found it. So what's gone on here isn't that you've suddenly diminished in my expectations. It's just that suddenly we've seen each other as members of the human race that struggle with this kind of stuff that goes on. So one of the best ways to be compassionate to yourself really is to say this isn't something that excludes you and shut you out in some way. This is the, this is something that actually includes you. You're human, well done. You're part of the human race and this is some of the things that we have to struggle with. Why don't I just say a couple of things about people if this is going on in church as well, because I think that can be, that can be hard too. Um, because sometimes when, when we encounter um, this kind of stuff in church, it can be really, really difficult to know what to do with it exactly. Like where, where do we, go to what do we do now most churches these days thankfully do have some kind of safeguarding system in in the sense that they should have someone you can blow the whistle to so if something like this does occur in your church um go with that if you find that that, that it's a historical thing in, in other words that this is something that happened once um and you want to disclose it so you want to go and find someone to to disclose it to that that's the point where you're sort of some people will go will go to law enforcement at that point. You know, that'll be their first port of call. Other people, again, they'll be going along to their doctor or something like that, um, because it's difficult. If, you know, if a bit of time has passed and you don't know what to do about it, um, that that's that's a good place to go. And then I think I think the other thing is that very often what happens in large organizations. So this isn't just churches. This can be businesses. It can be social clubs. It can be other things. It is that they're actually quite good at blaming the victim. So they're quite actually good at shooting the messenger. You know, the person who says this happened, here's the problem and don't want to see it. Um, and I think if that's where you find yourself, it's important that you have allies. So it's important that you find people who 
who can hear what you've got to say um, are, are willing to hear it and, and who believe you. Um, because nothing, it, one of the things that makes trauma really difficult in certain kinds of situations um, is not just what's happened to us, it's whether people believe what's happened to us, whether people are willing to validate and say, yeah, that must have been really hard and really tough. So, so if you think about trauma that occurs in families or churches, some of the victims of those moments will say the thing that was hardest about this was all the lying that went on around it, you know, and having to keep this terrible secret. Um, and um, I, I can't really go into any of the any, any of the sort of details of people I've worked with in those kind of situations, but I've worked with people where they've been physically or sexually abused in the context of church and it's come to light. Um, I, and I've been, you know, part, part of the support network who they can tell and therefore we can go, OK, let's let's get around you and look after you and sort of help you work through this. So it's worth beginning to think about who do you trust and how could you tell them? And if there's no one around who you trust right now, that's something to start thinking about, about where, where could you go where there might be a professional or someone you can tell where you know it's going to be safe and it will be held confidentially. So they're, they're, they're just a few very rough points there, Sam. Oh, that's really helpful. I think um, oh, I feel very grown up. This is um, this is all very serious, which is which is good. So, like, it's good to be really honest about this. That this does happen, and it's important to be recognised. And if people are, you know, scared or concerned, that they should find their their ways to reach out and to begin to process that. Um, it's it's not easy. I know I've been through a few different things other than just uh, leaving Christianity, which has been quite traumatic, and. Um, finding the right way to disclose it in the right setting to the right people is tricky and i've done it incorrectly and got burnt quite severely from from doing that being advised to do certain things by church leaders and and realizing that it's wrecked you know specific things um it, it's just just interesting kind of reflecting on that and kind of going okay well actually if i had spent some time really regrouping and maybe reading a few books or listening to a few podcasts and actually thinking things through more slowly and actually recognizing that I don't need to act today I can act tomorrow and actually begin to formulate a plan out of this situation um, it's quite helpful so I want to say situation I mean like how do I begin to process this thing that happened to me through rather than um something's happening right now if something's happening right now like you know contact the services or whatever you need to do but it, you know is that if, if something has happened and it's been traumatic it's how best to begin to process that and who do I process it with um it's interesting, I shared something with one of the elders at my church once and they were really pushing me on it, like really, really, really pushing me on it. And their wife had to go, hey, listen, like, why are you pushing Sam so hard on this thing right now? There's no reason other than you wanting to feel like you're making a difference. That's the only reason you're pushing right now. And it was really quite humbling to see him go, oh, oh yeah, you're right. I'm so sorry, Sam. I'm so sorry, Sam. But like, it was a, it was a really severe thing. And actually the advice they gave me after that, I followed and, that, and that's what burnt me basically. But it's that recognizing the good people in your life that you can talk to. And if you don't have those people in your life, begin to see where you could find them. Um, not just to use them for their time and their, and, and their loveliness, but actually just to begin to use them for their um, humanity and realize that you're human too and you have something to impart to each other and be able to build those, those frameworks. But it's, it's so complicated. I mean, I kind of want to go into this, but like, you know, 
for, for some individuals to find those people is just very tricky. Like, like Roger, there isn't going to be a Roger in everyone's church. Like you're a, you're a unique person with a unique set of skills. And, you know, there was nobody like you in my last church that I could speak to about this sort of stuff. And that's a church of like almost 500 people. So like, Wow. If, if, if there's a church of like you know 20 people and they're all knots like you this person's completely fucked like how do they begin to kind of like you know find the right situation so it's i guess the way i want to finish this is for signposting i think probably probably the best option if that's possible rogers like where can people go to get the right help um if if, if they need it if they're stuck in a situation in which they're kind of navigating things through and they just need to talk like where would you be uh pointing people Mm. And just to clarify, Sammy, me, are you now talking about people who've been through some kind of difficult trauma or are you thinking about people in church or are you thinking people broader than that? So what, just so that I make sure I'm landing the right audience in terms of the question. I think the question should be anybody who is listening to this in any situation who has traumatic experiences, they need to process um I'm aware that we're both UK based, so for the US, this isn't yeah. going to be easily done. But kind of, obviously, you're Christian, I'm ex-Christian, so there is the mm-hmm. there's the church bucket, um, but there's also the sort of like abuse bucket, which everyone's gone through different levels of abuse in in their yeah. life, absolutely. Um, and then there's the sort of kind of non-church secular world, and I think there is quite a lot of services in the UK to deal with all three of those. Uh, with US, I just don't know, and we're not really a US podcast, yeah. but um, it'd be good to get the signposting, especially for the UK. I think. Um, for all of those buckets though they're probably the same signposts i would have thought yeah so so the interesting thing in in most churches in my experience there probably won't be many people in the church who will understand what's happened so i think let's just be clear about this either they don't understand because it's not on their radar they don't understand because that's not their expertise so i think firstly we have to clear away this idea that every problem can be solved in church. You know, I, you know, as a Christian, I kind of wish that was the case, but it's not. And let, let's just be honest about that. Um, I, and I quite often um, will meet Christians who will say, I really want to see a Christian psychologist or I really want to see a Christian ph- therapist. And my sort of response to that is to say, well, actually, you're really sort of minimizing and reducing the population of people who can help you. Now, there are quite a few of those out there. But actually, there's probably somebody on your doorstep who's just as good. If they're a professional person, they'll be just as sympathetic to your faith, you know, as anybody else would be. Might not understand every single reference, but they'll get it. So I think the first thing I would say is that, that for a lot of people, um, they, they may need to go outside of the church for, for this side of things. They probably will have to. Um, we've talked a little bit about the importance of social support. So it's really sort of important that there might be other people around you who know about this. So whoever they are. But then I think for people here in the UK that they're sort of doing um, a few things. So so if they want to go through the public sector, they can literally go to their family doctor, their GP and say, this is what I'm going through. And for trauma, most people are sort of being referred to sort of high or low intensity psychological well-being practitioners. There's a whole raft of people in the National Health Service who work in these kind of things, whether it's depression or anxiety, you go a bit higher if you want to do things like um, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, which is a very nifty sort of way of working uh, with trauma. But there's plenty of people in the NHS trained um, in that kind of thing. Um, so the NHS is one way. But if if you um, want to go privately, um, one of the best ways would be to go on um a, a therapeutic website um, like the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists, the BACP website, 
they actually have um, a whole section called find a therapist. So you can just put in where do you live and it will pop up, you know, loads of the registered therapists who are near you. Now, if you go and find a therapist, the thing you have to keep in mind is that you're their employer. So if you're paying, usually they'll give you your first session free and effectively you're interviewing them. So it's not you just go and blah, tell them everything. It's like you're trying to decide, do I like this person? Do I trust them? Could I work with them? What do I make of them? And then what happens on the BACP website is that there are quite a few people on that website who will specialize in trauma. So it would say I'm a trauma therapist and you'll get their rate and you'll be able to see where they are. Um, the, the form of trauma therapy that I just mentioned is also worth searching for, perhaps, if you want to look for that. So EMDR, it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a way of really getting at very specific traumatic events and sort of working them through. So that's EMDR. So sometimes even if you put EMDR therapists near me into Google, you would get up who's there. And in order to practice that therapy, they, they have to be accredited and registered. And, you know, they it will tell you kind of what level they're accredited at. But that's the key thing. You're looking for someone who's accredited, which means they're supervised, they're qualified, um, and they have, they're part of the sort of ongoing code of conduct that manages therapists. Thanks, Roger. I'm, I'm aware that the next time we're actually speaking currently one-on-one, -on -one, because we have guests that what we're talking to from now on is going to be episode 109. And yes, listener, we have already booked up to 113 and we're currently on episode 95. So I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to pre-planning. But um, I think there might be lots of questions coming from this conversation and I want to leave the door open. So if there are questions, there is the comment section on the YouTube video for those listening on um, the audio version. And for those watching YouTube, please put your questions into the comment section. And what I'll try and do is I'll try and um, essentially collate those. And um, we could potentially talk to Roger about this in, in that episode. It's actually going to be a live stream episode as well. So um, be exciting. You'll be able to kind of chat to Roger live. Um, well, you better put your messages in the chat. And if it's too rude, I won't put it on the screen. But you can talk to us however you want. Um, we've, we've had some very mixed responses responses uh from from various youtube live streams um both against christians and against atheists interestingly so uh yeah there there, there we go so um basically if you have questions about this or you want to know more about roger's background um you want to know more about uh kind of how you can begin to process this sort of stuff you can ask things anonymously you just leave a comment just say please leave me anonymous and i'll make sure that there's no link to to the question or anything on on youtube itself um i can kind of just collate those questions and delete them there's obviously my email address as well if you go onto the website whenbeliefdies.com and you can contact me and i will try and collate any questions we have um i think this is a a, a really good space Roger. It's, it's really nice i i, I you know i i think it's great that i can have conversations about trauma with a christian and that be completely fine like i, don't, I can't think of any other podcast that's doing this which is quite exciting for me um so the fact that we can just be honest about the world we live in and how we are as people and the fact that we need help we all need help to navigate this world and there is a collective unity in that i think is quite exciting so roger are there any sort of final comments or thoughts you want to share before we draw this to a close do you know that that's my favorite thought the thought that you've just shared really um so i remember when, when i first went into therapy so i was in therapy for four years when it's part of my training but also you know i needed it as well and um I went into therapy and um, in one of my very first or second therapy sessions, I was moaning about church and I was going, oh, they've done this, and they've done that. And I can't believe this is going on. Um, and I ended my sort of rant by saying, and I can't believe that people call themselves Christians. And uh, my therapist, who was quite a strong agnostic, really had no time for Christianity at all. Um, he just says, Roger, 
I think we're all human beings first, aren't we? And um, th that comment actually has become a really, really essential element of, of my Christianity, of kind of like, not just looking at church, but also kind of my relationship with you, Sam, in terms of it's like there is this shared common human experience in which we're all just trying to work it out with quite a bit of uncertainty woven into it. And I think trauma is just one of many, many examples of where I think it's just really important that we just recognize we're together in this and we often don't know what we're up to or what we're doing. We've all got loads to learn. And um, I think if when belief dies is about anything, you know, it, it's about that. It's like, you know, sometimes we don't know what to believe, but I think we're kind of all in this together and we're trying to work it out. The human condition, my friend, we are all part of the human condition. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, please head on over to YouTube and to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. And I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.